0: Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. Uh, my name's Sam and once again I'm joined by Dave. Dave, how's it going?
1: I am doing well. Uh, we are continuing. In, uh, we, we started when lockdown happened. We were like, oh, lockdown will probably lasts a month or so. What is it now? Ten months or something? <laughs> yeah. So Still, still a living a large in lockdown life, working from home. Yeah, loving it. So yeah, I'm doing well, Sam. Good. Yeah, most
0: most people by this point have, have, have a lockdown baby. Uh, we have a lockdown podcast. So there we go. <laughs> Um anyway,
1: it's been beautiful making it with you, Sam.
0: Oh gosh. Okay, right. Let's leave that there. Um in other news, we are joined by Peter Williams. Peter, it's fantastic to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me on.
0: So I got in contact with Peter um probably about four months ago now. Um, after reading one of your books, Peter. So I read um, Miracles by C. S. Lewis and then I uh, picked up C. S. Lewis versus the New Atheists um by Peter and um found it extremely challenging and extremely thought-provoking so we've been emailing backwards and forwards for about four months now is that right peter would you say
2: yeah that sounds about right
0: yeah um and just thought it'd be really great to, to get you on the show um and chat through kind of a bit of your story and also kind of look at some of these arguments that you present in your in your book um and yeah and just kind of have just just a dialogue around those if that's if that's okay with you sounds fun. amazing so Peter, just to start us off, um, would you mind just sharing with us kind of your story, kind of maybe how you were raised, the sort of beliefs that you have, um, and yeah, where, where you are today?
2: Sure. So I was uh, raised by uh, two uh, teachers who met at teacher training college in, in Portsmouth, born and raised in Portsmouth. Um, both my parents uh, were Christians, um, went to a Baptist church in Portsmouth. Um, so that was my kind of upbringing uh, background. Um, but uh, my parents were very um, supportive in in as much as sort of saying uh, when I was of an age to not have to be under adult supervision, not need to be dragged along to to church or or whatever. You know, I didn't have to go. I didn't have to go to the same church as them. I didn't have to go to any church. I was sort of encouraged to um, make up my own decision about these things. Um, Both my parents were science teachers. Um, so they had that sort of that sort of science background as well. So I sort of grew up, grew up in, in, a, in a home where there was, you know, the occasional discussion about issues of sort of science and faith. There were um, some uh, books on those kind of issues in the house, which when I um, sort of started maturing intellectually, I started reading my dad's collection of, of indeed C.S. Lewis books. Um, some of his essays uh, uh, and so on. Um, and by the time I got to kind of sixth form, I had begun to discover sort of serious works of Christian apologetics by folks like um, Norman L. Geisler and J.P. Morland and so on. Um, and I did, um, amongst my A-levels, I did classical Civilization, which sort of introduced me a little bit to philosophy. I'm, I'm so old that, that philosophy A-level didn't exist, back in my day um, but when I went off to university at Cardiff I took um, humanities at Cardiff and you do three different courses in your first year and I, I intended to go and do a joint degree in English lit and music and I took philosophy as my sort of makeup additional third subject for the first year um, so I ended up graduating with a single honours degree in philosophy to cut a long story short and then carried on with with the philosophy um up through ma and a two-year research MPhil degree um worked as a a, a church-based student worker in leicester for a, for a number of years and then moved down to where i am now in southampton originally to work with a christian educational charity um where i did um um sort of uh, philosophy and ethics conferences in schools and state schools with year groups of um, 16 17 year old students for a morning and um also, through that educational charity, met folks at the Norwegian College that I'm now a, an associate uh, professor at. So I'm a sort of they, they own 40% of my time now and um, that college in uh, Christian Sound in Norway. But I'm, I'm based from uh, working out of uh, Southampton.
0: Okay, and and um, when would you say that um, that your faith really kind of became your own? Then when was the, the the time? Is it always been the case that you've always just strongly believed, or was there a point where you kind of really picked it up and started running it uh, running with it yourself?
2: Yeah, I, I guess it's a it's a gen, gentle sort of maturation process. I think uh, I think you go from a sort of childhood believing whatever your parents tell you, and that's kind of the culture that you're you're brought up into to getting to that stage of realising, oh, gosh, you know, different people have different opinions about this. And, you know, what do I think? I have to sort of make my own mind up. Um, and I, I, I've always did that and I continue to, to go through that that question. I, I don't think sort of becoming a this, that or the other is really just a, a, a momentary decision. I think it's a, an ongoing moment by moment, day by day decision um to to go with a particular way of life, spirituality, religion, worldview, call it what you will. Um, so I guess I went through some sort of serious kind of asking, did I own it for myself around the time I was in sixth form? I um, underwent adult baptism whilst I was a, a sixth former So that was a sort of formative kind of making a sort of public declaration of this is something I'm earning own, for myself. Um, and I think also going away to, to university and again, you, you, of course, you know, meeting a wide range of people from different uh, religious and non-religious traditions uh, forces you again to think, you know, do I really believe this? And particularly when you're studying philosophy and you're explicitly asked to delve into the question of, you know, is there any good reason for or against believing in a god and so on and you meet you know professors from a a range of opinions and you're reading books from a range of opinions and so you 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 have to very explicitly kind of think through that but for me it's just been always been the case that when i go through that questioning process um it's never come to a point where i think uh no i don't believe this i I always get to a point of thinking yes I, I, i still do think that this makes makes sense and that this is um, you know, the, the, the belief system, the way of life um, that I am going to be committed to. So it's not out of an, an, un, an unquestioning commitment. I think actually it's, it's a commitment that, that demands you, that you question it. If you don't question, you don't learn more. Uh, you can't get deeper or more consistently into any belief system if you don't question it. Um, And certainly in in terms of, you know, talking with other people, um, unless you're going to sort of wall yourself off into, you know, what Christians sometimes call a little holy huddle, um, (laughs) you're you're going to have to, you know, be forced into situations where you you need to articulate and understand your beliefs and other people's beliefs and the the contrast between them and sort of the main lines of, of discussion between different faith systems and so on and i guess you know as someone trained in, in in philosophy and then going into the whole area of philosophy of religion it's kind of what i specialized in uh, as well um that's very explicitly the the case being the case in my life
0: amazing and i guess kind of what would you say are the um it's probably a massive question so if it is too big feel free just to tell me to be quiet um, but it'd be really interesting to hear kind of the the things that have really kind of um I guess grounded your beliefs like the I mean just kind of talk about myself I guess for a second then we can kind of go, go 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 back to your grounding so I kind of found that I had I, I held this belief um and then I realized almost that when I looked down that it wasn't actually anchored to anything that I was aware of at least at the time mm-hmm. and realized that uh, that was a very disconcerting feeling for me um and obviously kind of reading reading your book and and chatting to you and um having I've got your other book but i haven't actually got through it through to read it yet yeah, i apologize but um yeah kind of having having those sorts of um those questions that you've gone through especially at that sort of like philosophical level um if it's possible it's really good to hear kind of how you uh, personally ground that then what what are the things that really carry you through
2: okay this this actually opens up a whole kind sort of philosophical territory about when it is sensible to believe something and and, and the whole there's a whole discussion in in philosophy about that that area of I mean in Greek, it's epistemology, but basically how we know things. Um, yeah, when it's sensible to believe something. And um, I, I think um, it's both important to take very seriously the way things appear or seem to be to us that 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 we wouldn't really ever get to a point of knowing anything unless we started by trusting something uh, and so this issue could kind have of is connected to a sort of a, a burden of proof issue we, we don't start in a sort of completely neutral not believing anything point and then ask so now what should i believe you know, like you know René Descartes kind of thought you you almost could we we start with a a way the world seems to us uh, and that way the world seems to us kind of puts a burden of proof on positions that disagree that contradict that way the world seems to us so i, I think as, as a even as a kid the world kind of struck me as a created place it, 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 that just the, the belief in a creator god seemed very very natural seemed to, to chime with the way that things were um, and the, the 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 claim of biblical revelation i mean again you know as a kid you just kind of take it at the sunday school, school kind of story level and as you grow up and you start thinking about it i think even as a, as a child i noticed things like um this literature is astonishingly Honest about the failings of its hero characters. Um, that um, you know the, the the central event of the of the the Jewish story of of the Exodus is this Moses guy who is you know at at, at best guilty of manslaughter if not murder. <laughs> that um, King David, you know, the greatest king of of the nation that, that they're also proud of uh, is an adulterer who tried to get his uh Bathsheba's wife killed by sending him to the front lines in battle that the one of the main apostles disciples of Jesus Peter uh you know is famous for having denied Jesus three times and sort of abandoned him and so on um that the, the, this kind of stream of gosh, you know, literature that people are just sort of making up to make themselves feel good as a sort of national story or to um, put, willing to sort of just make stuff up would put themselves in a good light. But, but this literature constantly puts, even kind of the main heroic figures that it puts forward in a, a brutally honest light. Um, and so I think as you go through and you, and you start, Thinking at a, at, a, at a deeper, beyond just a sort of impressionistic level, as well, then you get into, I think, a range of the you know the arguments for and against God and the arguments for and against the the, the Christian revelation claim and sort of is Jesus who Christians think he was and so on. I don't think I've come across sufficient reason to overturn that initial impression. And, or the combination of that initial impression and, and the arguments that I've delved into afterwards. And, you know, I've, I've probably spent more time thinking about those problems, difficulties with the Bible or the Christian faith or belief in God or whatever than a lot of non Christians have simply because that's kind of what you're forced to do within, within the subject. Uh, our philosophy of religion and then more, more broadly uh, apologetics it's
0: a great answer i think um a lot of the times, um, yeah, people just say, "Oh, you just, you just um, assume that God exists, or you just kind of had this um, this gut feeling you were raised in it." But I think I think you're absolutely right in in making it clear that we we don't come to this with a blank slate. We we bring our own convictions and thoughts and feelings and the, how we've been raised and you know, the settings and places into into this journey almost. And the fact that it is a journey, it's not necessarily just a destination. It's this idea of kind of working through and be intellectually rigorous with why you believe things and how you um, come to those those realizations as well. And this is kind of part, part of that first email I sent to you. And I was just kind of sent you that, that, that review of your book when I was looking at, at how you spoke about the atheistic worldview. And, you know, a lot of atheists will be listening to this and go like, I'll be shuddering thinking that atheism isn't a worldview. But, but I think something that you pointed out to me in your book, which I found very challenging is that idea that um, if you, don't believe there is a god then you're going to have to have a worldview based on something it could be naturalism materialism um humanism what what, what whatever the bedrock becomes um without a god that there, there is going to naturally become a bedrock and um and what, i think there's a quote in, in 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 your book which really got me which talks about kind of building your framework um in that brings nothing but despair um at the end of the day and i found that really really challenging like what mm. If 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 atheism, if atheism is true, then it, it should kind of naturally lead to nihilism, which I found like a really challenging um, kind of thoughts to have pop into my head. I wonder if you could spend a few minutes kind of like delving into that a little bit, and kind of just just exploring those sorts of facets.
2: Yes, sure, yeah, um, and I think the the the, the atheists who most impress me are, I think, the, the ones who in trying to draw out the, the logical implications of the denial of God um, do end up in, in that sort of nihilistic direction. And it seems to me kind of the more consistently one tries to think through the implications of the denial of a God, that the further you're pushed towards a nihilistic conclusion, um, Particularly if you're, you're talking about a, uh, a sort of materialistic or naturalistic worldview. Um, because, um, well, let's think, let's think of it like this. I think, um, that the sort of the French existentialists and the sort of Nietzsche's and so on of the world are, are basically right in saying, you know, if we don't believe in a God, then it doesn't make sense to believe in Objective that is out there to be discovered values of of, of goodness or or beauty, and it doesn't make sense to believe in a sort of out there to be discovered um, inherent or given purpose to the existence of the universe or to human existence. Um, On the framework that in order for there to be a, 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 a given purpose. There has to be a, a proposer behind the reality that has the given purpose. Of course, we can we can have our own. We can say, well, this is going to be my purpose in life. I'm going to decide that this is what I'm going to live for. Um, but there's no question of saying, you know, is that am I correct that, that is the purpose of my life? On a materialist or naturalistic framework, there is no such thing as the purpose of life to be discovered. We we're just here, right? There's no intention behind us being here. Um, neither does it make sense to to kind of think that the the ideas or gut feelings that we have about morality are accurately reflecting some sort of transcendent realm of moral facts. That we get right when we make moral judgments um morality would be as as many naturalists argue just purely a, a sort of human subjective or cultural or sort of evolutionarily generated set of reactions that you know we feel that incest or rape or child murder or whatever you know are, are bad and we feel that because in our evolutionary history it was you know the 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 hominids that had those feelings spread their genes better in the past it was useful that they felt that way um but saying that feeling a certain way was useful to the survival of our ancestors is not at all the same thing as saying that it's true that x y or z is good or bad you know. So I think the the sort of logical implication of a, of a naturalistic or materialistic worldview is that we're living in a pur- purposeless, meaningless reality, objectively speaking. Um and then this ties in later with you want to raise the issue about about the argument from reason, is really again trying to work through what are the implications of a materialistic or naturalistic worldview framework for what we can sensibly think about human rationality uh, and reason and i think similarly the 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 more through going you are as it were with a commitment to working out the implications of a naturalistic framework the worse the the results are for what we should think about human rationality but that becomes self-defeating Uh, I mean, it's possible to try and live as if nothing means anything uh, and as if there are no, no, no values, um, but it is incoherent to try and embrace a view that says you can't reason about anything reliably or you can't actually know anything um, because you can't say, I know that I can't know anything. It's true that there are no truths that we can reason about. It's like. Um, that's, philosophically speaking, cutting your own throat, sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Um, And and there are, you know, just as there are, you know, these philosophers who are, you know, atheist philosophers who say, look, to be consistent in being an atheist, you should give up on thinking there's an uh, objective meaning and purpose and so on. There are many um, atheist philosophers who have argued and worried that a, a, a naturalistic or materialistic worldview is one in which reason and rationality and knowledge don't make sense. Um, now, that, that doesn't automatically then push those philosophers to then saying, oh, well, we should all, you know, stop being atheists and believe in God again. Um, that's sort of a, 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 a secondary and further issue um, because there obviously there are, there are ways of it, to be an atheist. You just need to deny that there's a God. That's not the same thing as Being a materialist or a naturalist, Um, you you know, you can um, be a a Buddhist atheist or (laughs) um, be like, you know, folks like um, Thomas Nagel, I'm thinking of particularly, um, he in several of his his books has has argued through this worry about, you know, can materialism or naturalism really be made consistent with the claims that we can know and reason reliably? And and he thinks not. And so he says and so, you know, naturalistic materialistic worldview must must be false. But that doesn't mean he says and therefore I'm gonna become a, a theist or a Christian or you know <laughs> but I but I think it it's I would put it as kind of step one of a of an argument towards that direction in saying if you if you get to that point of thinking, you know, knowledge, reason and naturalism, materialism, they don't cohere together. Well, which which are you going to get rid of? Well, you have to get rid of the naturalism or materialism because otherwise you're contradicting yourself. What worldview would make sense of our ability to know and reason? Just as the question of what worldview would make sense of thinking there is a given purpose to life would make sense of the idea that there are these transcendent values that don't depend upon us, that we get right when we make moral judgments, at least sometimes. Well, you know, a, a worldview that says in the beginning was a mind of some kind is a worldview that would seem to give a a home for all of those things including reason and knowledge whereas you know the difficulty for knowledge and reason with the the materialistic worldview is starting with a worldview that says in the beginning is well it is just stuff that doesn't have reason or knowledge or intentionality or any any of these sort of um mentalistic concepts um that we're trying to kind of fit into that sort of naturalistic box
0: I mean just kind of after hearing what you said I I pulled up the um the review I wrote I just think I'd just like to read um, obviously you're quoting Bertrand Russell and he's Mm. got an essay called uh, a free man's worship but this is what really got me I'm just going to read it and I think it would be good for the listeners to to hear it as well Um, and there's another quote I want to end with of yours as well which I found very challenging so anyway we'll just I'll read this one for a second That man is the product of causes which had no previous, uh, sorry, had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collisions of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no Intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. That's just a an extremely yeah. ch- challenging collection of words, and like if this is this is what life is if this if, if god is not real and this is this is where we end up going and this is what is actually real then um you know people can just go well i'm just gonna pretend it's that there is meaning and just crack on with my own bit but actually i realized very recently that i don't believe that like i i'm not saying that i definitely believe in god or anything but i i don't think that the conversations i have with my son when he's asking me kind of about god or he talks to me about life or when i'm Um, sat beside a coffin of a friend and I in my head and my heart I don't turn around and think to myself this is this is it this is the completion of everything I still feel like there's there's something extra that I haven't I just haven't got switched in or haven't got switched on I find it very very challenging it's almost like I said this to my dad the other day. it's, it's it's almost like I'm I'm sat there thinking that when this moment passes that it wasn't the complete moment it could have been and there's like a depth that's owed upon that moment um that might just sound like gibberish to a lot of people which is absolutely fine but i just find that very challenging as i'm going for a walk and i'm enjoying the autumn leaves they're falling as they are at the moment um i don't just think that this is completely pointless and meaningless and there's no reason behind this um actually i mean i might say i do and i might be there intellectually but i don't live or act and my heart does not say those things are true um and so i've got these two contradictions going on it's just so fascinating to have that highlighted to me i'm like oh my goodness i don't I don't know what that means. It's just a very interesting kind of almost dichotomy to be in.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, if you if you get to a point of seeing a kind of contradiction between two sets of belief, uh, and you're in a position of asking yourself, so, you know, so what do I do with that? Do I just try and ignore it and kind of keep living with these two mutually contradictory things in, in my brain and, and draw on one in some situations and the other in other others. Um, but then there's something in us, I think, that, 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 that pushes us towards wanting to live out of a consistent worldview and to live consistently with that. That's what sort of spiritual wholeness or integration is about. Um, we want to have a, a way of life that, that integrates us and brings wholeness to us and, and having a, a sort of being pulled in mutually contradictory directions by different bits of our our worldview is spiritually disintegrating um, so we that that kind of discomfort at that pushes us to try and, and resolve the discomfort in, in some way some consistent way um, now i could reference back to what you mentioned earlier about you know burden of proof and taking the way that things seem to us as kind of fundamental um so which does which is the way that things most strongly seem to you that life has a meaning and purpose and value or that the a materialistic naturalistic worldview is is true which which of those two sets of belief do you, do you feel you have the most reason to believe um and as I say, whatever you make of that doesn't then immediately jump you to, uh, 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 well, I, I must be a theist then, kind of thing. But you could at least kind of say, well, okay, so actually, I think I've got, you know, no one has given me good enough reason to overturn my commitment to thinking that, no, that things do matter. <laughs> there are things that are, that are meaningful and that are worth something and so on and that actually intellectual consistency is one of those things (laughs) that is worth pursuing right that i should pursue in a sort of objective sense and that just doesn't square with that sort of bertrand russell everything is meaningless worldview so okay so i'm not a materialist bertrand russell sort of worldview guy I believe that there is real meanings and maybe purpose and, and, and values out there. Then it's, then it's a further quest to go on, to, to, to ask the question, OK, what kind of view of things makes the most sense of those commitments? Um, or what, what implications do those commitments have beyond simply, well, they don't fit with materialism, naturalism, so that's not true. But are there any further implications of those commitments, and that's
1: a that's a you know secondary issue then. So that leads us quite nicely on actually um, with this idea of yeah if you get to the point you just said there, what has led led you then obviously upbringing aside um, to go from that position to Jesus <laughs> because there's there's quite a big gap in yeah, between those two yeah, things right. isn't there?
2: And so, I, I you mentioned um, Sam earlier you've got you've got my other book but I, i've I've written quite a few so I'd, I'd be interested to know which which the other one is you, you've got but I've written a couple of books that are on the the, the sort of Jesus question and the how do you go from um, say just a, a, a sort of generic belief in you know in a a, a God even I um, mean that's I mean the second step up I would I would say, I think there are a number of very good reasons for belief in a God and reasons that can go from commitments to meaning, purpose, values of various kinds to reason, rationality as well, to belief in a God. And I think there are good reasons to go from um, belief in a God to to specifying that belief in the the Christian sense more. Uh, Indeed, I think, yeah, I think if you approach the the lines of argument that one could give about um, the Christian view of Jesus, and if you approach them without a dogmatic commitment to atheism, you have to be open at least to the possibility that there could be good enough evidence for you to believe that a miraculous revelation of some kind has taken place. Obviously, you no know, miracles can't happen if there isn't a God. Um, so that would, you know, if, you, if you're if you very sure that there's no God, um, it would take, you know, a heck of a lot of evidence maybe to convince you that something of a miraculous revelation had taken place. Um, but if you're sort of non-dogmatic in your atheism or you're agnostic, you're saying, you know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Or particularly if, you know, sort of going up the scale, as it were, you think, well, maybe there's some kind of generic creator behind the universe. Um, I wonder if that creator has revealed itself in, in in any way in these religious tradition claims. Let's have a look at them. Um, that will affect kind of how much um, sort of historical etc evidence on the ground will, will it will you will require to think that it's reasonable to say believe in the Christian revelation claim. Obviously, if you if you approach the evidence as a sort of non-dogmatic atheist, it's going to take more evidence to convince you than if you approach the same evidence with belief in a creator of some kind already in hand, because then all of the weight of the, the evidence for the revelation can go into convincing you that, that the God you already believe in has revealed himself. Rather than any of the weight of that evidence going into convincing you that okay yeah maybe, you know maybe in light of this evidence it does make sense to believe that there's a god and that he's revealed himself you see so so the, the sort of the prior beliefs that we bring to the investigation um, affect the sort of weighting we will give on our receptivity to uh, the evidence. And uh, if we had times, I mean, I wrote a book called um, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, where I look at what I think are kind of the five arguments that Jesus and his own disciples gave for the truth of the Christian revelation claim. And recently I wrote a book called Getting at Jesus, which looks at what the, the new atheist movement says about the historical Jesus um, and looks at that whole sort of discussion about, um, you know, can miracles happen? Are they believable? Can historical evidence ever convince us that a miracle has happened? And I focus particularly on the, um, the central miracle claim of, of the of the of the resurrection, uh, and spend a couple of chapters going through, you what kind of historical criteria and explanatory criteria should we use in such an investigation? Applying those criteria carefully to the to the documentary evidence, comparing different hypotheses about explaining. The relevant evidence, and so on, and I mean, no surprise, obviously arguing that I think that the the, the resurrection claim actually makes the best sense out of the relevant data that we can establish. Um, but as I say, what what you make of that is in part going to be decided by what you think of the arguments about which hypothesis best explains the data. In part by what you think is the relevant data that we can establish, you know what what kind of rules of history and historical investigation to show and should we be should we be applying? What you make about the discussion about you know can there be miracles supported by etc. So you have to kind of it's a long kind of chain of, of issues to kind of work through uh, really, um, and it's a very interdisciplinary study as well. Um, but uh, so there's you know. That's why you end up writing quite thick books about it, rather than. (laughs) uh, It's not the sort of issue that you can solve in a a couple of emails or or tweets on Twitter or whatever. But um, yeah, the the basic take home is: uh, first of all, your your receptivity to or belief in some kind of a god will be a big effect on what you make of the the historical arguments. Uh, for the Christian revelation claim but there, there certainly are a number of historical arguments um, that I think at least if you're not dogmatic about atheism when you approach them um, all have some weight to them and cumulatively, cumulatively together I think have quite a lot of weight to them
1: approach then um Mm. fully understand that what on these of those historical points so yeah what is it that that to you i know as you said there's a lot more complicated than a simple answer but i'm pushing for a simple answer (laughs) Um, yeah what is it then that so if you could pick like i don't know a a handful of things that are real key for you um that that grounds your your christian faith which (laughs) overrides these burdens of proof from maybe other claims as you go through your, I've drawn a little diagram of your journey from your start point to the end and how these burdens of proof on these other beliefs are uh, on your um, encountering them. And, um, but yeah, so what is it about the, the Christian faith, which which yeah. really appeals? Because lots of what we're trying to do on this podcast is is really understand why people believe, like the core thing of what makes a person really believe the thing that they, they hold true in their worldview and their life. So yeah, if, if you could summarize in a, a few few pointers what are the main things for you
2: yeah well um let's take uh for example there's there's an argument um called the trilemma or the the lunatic liar lord argument um it depends upon uh, a whole bunch of historical stuff about can you establish um, certain things about the historical jesus at least that he made various very uh, um, um, let me think of the word, um, very elevated claims for himself in his cultural situation um, that stand in tension with um, evidence that you also think you can establish about him being uh, basically a, a, a very good man, at least, who doesn't give any of the, the indication that he's suffering from mental psychosis. Basically, that he seems to be a good and sensible person, as indeed many atheists are entirely happy to say that he was whilst adding. But of course, you know, he wasn't wasn't divine. But but there seems to be, I think, good evidence that he both did and said things that implicitly and more or less explicitly claimed divinity in Judeo, uh, in Jewish terms. And, and there's a sort of paradox involved there. Um, and, and this is where the sort of trilemma bit comes in of, of saying, you know, well, did he did he really honestly mean those claims or not? OK, um, if not, then he was just a, a sort of lying con artist. Um, for some reason, he was trying from his point of view to deceive people into believing he's the son of God or whatever. Um, you know, for all the the side benefits, like getting crucified. Um, But if he he did mean them, those claims are, of course, either true or false. Now, if he meant them and they're false, then he is radically deluded about who he is. His own self-understanding is really wide of the mark. Um, And kind of a measure of your sanity is... Um, one philosopher put it, is, is the, the gap between your your reality and your self-image. For a first century Jew, to honestly think that they are divine is about a bigger gap, as big a gap as you can imagine. Um, so that would mean that he was basically, you know, in the alliterative, uh, a lunatic, a liar, a lunatic, or if he was honestly making those claims and they were true, then, then of course they're true and he is, you know, El Lord. Um Now, I don't think that that is a knockdown argument for a Christian understanding of Jesus. I do think when you go into the details, it's an argument that has some weight and that I think even a non-dogmatic atheist could look at that argument and go, yeah, I can see that there's a sort of paradox there and I can see there's some weight to that argument. Maybe it makes me a little bit less sure about denying the truth of the Christian revelation claim than I was before I met that argument. But it's not convinced me. And this is what I mean by cumulative case, because in, in that case, I would say, OK, fine, I've soaked up some of your scepticism, but not all of it. Well, let me now give you another argument. And, and then see where you are at the end of that, because you approach this second argument Slightly less skeptical about Christianity than you were before. Now, if I do that, you know, with five arguments in a row, if I look at the, you know, the evidence that um, Jesus was a miracle worker in his lifetime, if I look particularly at the evidence for the resurrection, uh, if I look at um, evidence about uh, modern day religious experience involving Jesus and so on, um, I can kind of gradually soak up the scepticism you bring to belief in the Christian truth claim. Um, now, how much you know, of your scepticism, will, will, will that process push you past a point of 50-50 relative to the Christian understanding of Jesus or not? Well, that's going to be very person relative in a sense. It's going to kind of depend upon what you as an individual make of those arguments and you know what kind of beliefs you brought with you to the investigation how skeptical of christianity were you before i gave you any of these arguments right but for at least for 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 some people who start from the position of no i don't believe that maybe they will come to think that actually by the time i've looked looked at the sort of range of evidence and considered them together and it's interesting that there are all these, these clues from sort of different areas pointing in the same direction. That actually, I think it maybe does make enough sense for me to think, yeah, that, that probably is reasonable to actually believe that now. And that, that's what I mean by sort of mounting a, a cumulative case. It, uh, none of the individual arguments have to be sort of do all the work or be a knockdown. They just have to have some weight to them such that when you, you kind of pile them together, they are sufficient to outweigh the amount of scepticism you brought with you and that's something only kind of you as the individual reader or responder to these arguments are in a position to kind of judge
1: the language you're using is this sort of step step by step by step by step process to become like in your eyes the eventuality and eventual conclusion would hopefully be a belief in jesus um as opposed to an eventual belief in nothing or whatever in between materialism and all that stuff um what point then, it'd be interesting to have your take on this, is someone a Christian then, or not? Where is that boundary line then? Because I asked that question, um, that we've asked it for in the episode, because from all the accounts of Jesus, he was very cut and dry. Jesus seemed very much in or out, sheep and goats, etc., etc. Um, yeah. and, and your reasoning, I fully understand, but it seems there's much, much more gradiented understanding of, of where you stand on a very right. long pathway um, yeah. And so, yeah, I'd be really interested in your take on that. Like, at what point then is someone saved, or you know, born again? All the language that's used in Christian circles. Yeah. When yeah. did that happen?
2: <laughs> so, first of all, let me let me distinguish between us talking about believing something about about Jesus um, versus um, making a personal commitment to Jesus um, to giving your um allegiance to him or putting your trust in him right um those are are two different things and don't um are, are not sort of necessarily connected i i, I would say um I, I think for most people um uh, people want to ask you know is this something I believe, or is this something that it's at least, you know, reasonable for me to believe? Um, and I guess in belief terms, uh, if you want to kind of, kind of put it in sort of numerical values, if you're 50-50 about a belief, a, a truth claim, you're agnostic about it. And if you're 40, if you're 49%, <laughs> well, then you don't believe it, but you're, you're just you know, not very skeptical about it, but you don't believe it. And if you're 51, then you believe it, but not with much, much surety or certainty. Um, so, in terms of belief, I mean, you need to be above 50 50, right? I would say. Um, but in terms of do you give your commitment and allegiance to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to use the, you know, religious lingo. Um, well, you either do or you don't. Now, you either do or you don't believe something, but you can, you can do that with more or less level of belief. You can commit to someone um, more or less throughgoingly, but uh, it's, it's a bit like, you know, you're at the altar and the, the priest asks, you know, you know, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? You either say I do or you say, well, no, actually, I don't. You run out of the church. you know? um, <laughs> So, um, but, you know, after 30 years of marriage to someone, would you maybe say, oh, actually, the depth of our relationship has has increased and we know we, one another better and I, you know, I understand her more and I, I actually, I, I trust her more than I did when as a, I was a callow. 18 year old I said yes at the altar or whatever um well maybe yeah sure you know relationships um develop over time hopefully in a positive direction um so I, I think um those belief and commitment are two related but but separate things uh and both can be kind of honest a, on a sliding scale um but you either do believe or don't believe and you either do commit or don't commit. Um, but, uh, you know, believing is not the same thing as committing. I mean, there's a famous verse in, um, I think it's the letter of James, isn't it? You know, even even the demons believe. You, you believe in one God? Talking to, you know, well, even the demons believe and tremble. You know, they believe that there's a God, or that Jesus is God or whatever. Um, but they don't believe in him. They hate his guts, kind of thing. That's uh, so belief and you know faith in the sense of, of, of belief versus faith in, in, in the sense of, of trust or allegiance. Uh, although often related, they're not actually the same thing.
1: It's quite a nice response quite an analogy with the 18 year old getting married it's a very early commitment right there goodness me taking the plunge um so that, that's really interesting it, it leads on to I, I'm, I'm only asking the question i literally ask everyone but these ones are really interesting um it leading on from that then to the idea of commitment um that the language you used there was the trust in committing to classic christian phrase would be the lord of your life all the we all know the words um so you've kind of touched on that already with your answer but um some of the things we've spoken about before is is why do we see christianity in the church not seeming to look like jesus is in the bible um and i just so it's a similar question your take on that like again you've got this gradient and this commitment but then often after a commitment it's not i suppose it's similar to use biblical language it's like the commitment the altar i say i do but then there's just massive amounts of adultery you know how in the all the prophets talking about Israel going and literally my favorite verse in the Bible, Ezekiel twenty three twenty, which is the whole she lusts after her love, lovers who are hung like donkeys. Like, oh, it's my favorite verse. <laughs> I, I, when everybody, anybody ever asks for it, I quote that and they don't know what it is and they look it up and they um, either find it very rude or funny. Um, but, but that is a similar analogy, isn't it? This idea that um, yeah. there is a commitment and also, but then there's just massive adultery. And so, mm-hmm. so I suppose it's a similar question. Like, um, how do you take that? How, how do you reconcile that? I think is the the question there because that reconciliation for me and i know for sam for it, is very hard like that's one of the reasons lots of these questions come like why do we not see actually suppose suppose, an example of christianity in the modern world um so yeah what's your ability to reconcile that with both your own life and with people around you and the church as a whole etc
2: yeah sure um you know what what's, what's the phrase like i don't think this is necessarily true but there's kind of a phrase out there from someone about like the best argument for christianity and the worst argument for christianity is christians kind of <laughs> they, they they christians can attract people to christianity and they can really put off people from christianity uh, depending on which christian you're pointing to and, and and which other person you're pointing to as well i guess um and gosh isn't that true um yeah and you know, I'd always bracket, of course, it's it's very hard for us to to really know the, the state of someone's heart. Um, there's sometimes um, people own the label of Christians. They certainly do in, in terms of poll reporting uh, and so on. People uh, own the name of, of Christian who only mean it in a very sort of, um, well, I was baptised. So of course I'm a Christian or I, I go to church. Every time there's an play you know, that my child's in, or, <laughs> kind of, um, but I think you know bracketing that, um, of course, even for people who are, to all intents and purposes, you know, committed Christian believers, I don't know I I just know from knowing myself that Christians, you know, prove every day the, the Christian doctrine that we're in Christian terms, sinners—that um, we are far from uh, perfect beings. This 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 side of eternity. Um, that's why we need God's forgiveness and uh, counsel, uh, and why we are, you know, striving hopefully to be better, uh, to you know, to put on Christ as, as Paul describes it, um, to become more of what god intends us to be um but uh we don't think we can do that you know by our own um effort or merit we think effort's involved i i think in 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 following but we don't think that we win god's approval by making sufficient effort that's what the whole you know forgiveness by by grace means it it means admitting i'm never going to be good enough to to earn god's approval by being good enough um that is the whole problem that the 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 christian gospel kind of sets out and sets out to offer a solution to of of saying okay no you're, you're not this side of heaven going to be good enough to merit uh, salvation, that's why you need salvation, um, which is something that you have to accept as a gift, but it's a gift that then inspires you, hopefully, to try to do better. The question is not, am I better than the next person, but that as a Christian, am I, am I better than I would have been w- without Christ?
0: Well, thank you for that Peter that's um that's really helpful and I think um something I found really interesting is recently Douglas Murray was talking about um how Christianity um almost unlocks the ability to forgive people whereas within society we love accusing we love blaming we love kind of piling on um these assertions onto people but actually we've lost that ability to um, forgive people um and to have those sorts of um open and honest conversations which i think is really good i think also reflecting you on it the idea that you were saying that you know being a christian enables you to be better than you would have been i think a lot of um non-believers who listen to the podcast properly and you know read blog posts that i write and things like that would turn around and say well you know look at christianity it's done so much harm so much evil so much wrong but actually on an individual level i think it really does it really does say something and you know you could yeah know, i'm gonna get um, hate 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 mail for this i'm sure but like you know that People have the ability to be able to improve because of the beliefs that there is um, something that's greater than themselves that they're living for. There is a there is a a bar that has been set, which is not the bar that is set with your own mind and heart, but it's a bar that is set by someone else. That someone being God, and actually, you're called to live into that fullness, mm-hmm. and you're going to consistently fail to hit that bar. And there's almost like a humility in that, and I think that's. A really powerful thing that I, th- I honestly think that we've lost within society. And I, was, I was reflecting with a friend at work actually the other day. Um, they were talking about kind of the, the issues that we see in in China and North Korea and um, other sorts of um, states that we wouldn't be very familiar with here here, here in the UK and and with America, um, where where we've almost lost God in those sorts of places where God is not a thing anymore. So the most important thing is the state, or the most important thing is the government, and actually God in and of itself, and I think Tom Holland talked about this as well a little bit in his book Dominion, um, is is something that we almost need within society to give these things like this humility, this individual um, goal, this sort of societal forgiveness that we just seem to have dropped off the map and now we're in this turmoil of how do we actually forgive people, how do we deal with that. It's, it's a challenging situation. I have answers, just loads of observations, um, but yeah, it's a really tricky one, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, talking of interesting books, I was started reading a little while ago a book by um, the Australian uh, historian um, John Dixon. He's a, a Christian uh, historian in Australia, but he wrote a book um, about humility called Humilitas, um, looking at the cultural origins of, of valuing humility as as, uh, as a virtue, uh, and tracing it back to to Jesus, and sort of saying that actually within you know, the, the, the pagan sort of Greco-Roman world, um, humility was not considered to, to be a virtue, um, but that it's the the, the Judeo and Christian roots of the idea of, you know, the Jesus who says, yes, yes, you know, I, I am your master. Now you've got to let me wash your feet and take on the role of the servant. I, I'm, you know, the servant king. Um you, you shouldn't lord it over one another's like secular lords do, but the, um, the the greatest among you will sort of serve the others and putting putting a value on on humble service to other people as something that's um, to be uh, valued and uh, to be considered a virtue um, was very alien to the the Greco-Roman world, and that's a value that you know the, the, the our world, you know, even in the secular sphere, has has inherited um, those are the the historical roots, at least, uh, of of having that kind of value of humanity as a virtue. Yeah.
0: That's really helpful. And I guess kind of we've we, we've skirted around the edges of it in our conversation, but I thought it'd be really good to touch on the argument from reason. For me, the big takeaway from reading Miracles and then reading your book um, is that um, reason and rationality and morality um, without some sort of kind of substrate for it to be pinned to um, isn't really... It, I think you mentioned it before, it's almost like you're soaring off the branch that you're trying to grow something from. It's um, I think C.S. Lewis puts it really well in his book, Miracles, there's almost like a pond and there's things that we can see above the pond, but there's certain things on the pond that have to have a root that goes further down into the very, very kind mm-hmm. of uh, base of that pond. Without that, it's just kind of slime and gunk floating on the surface. It doesn't actually mean anything and rationality and morality aren't actually anything without that sort of kind of objective Roots that kind of carries it all the way through. I wonder if to just give us a few minutes of kind of your your thoughts and feelings around the um, argument from reason.
2: Okay, so I, I think, first of all, we, we start with an, an understanding of what a, a materialist stroke naturalistic worldview claims, and that this is that the framework of anything that, that's real is this um, causally closed system of realities that are unintentional, that don't have... Purposes inherent within them. Um, there's no what the philosophers would call a sort of goal directedness or, or teleology. so We have these, these non intentional, impersonal physical realities interacting in a closed system together. And then mind and particularly to focus on sort of reason and knowledge seem to exhibit at least properties that are intention with that seem to be incompatible with that framing. Uh, and that then leaves you with with a limited number of options for sort of what, what do you do with this? There are a number of philosophers who reject the idea that we actually have minds or reason or, or, or knowledge they're called uh, you know a, an eliminative position about about the philosophy of mind um, like someone like um, the atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett would have uh, and so you know it's useful to treat, And think of people as if they had thoughts about things but actually they don't because basically that doesn't fit with his commitment to a materialistic worldview you can't get intentionality from things that don't have intentions how do you do it whereas a lot of other you know atheist philosophers of mind would say look you know it's sort of self-defeating to to claim that we don't have thoughts about things that we that we're not reasoning about stuff you know why are we publishing all these philosophy papers otherwise but they would want to say so there must be a way of of fitting that reality that mental reality into a material naturalistic worldview and it's fair to say that there's certainly no agreed way of doing that I don't think anyone really claims that we, we know how to do that. They just say, in principle, it must be, and we'll, you know, trust us, we'll get there, kind of thing. Or you could accept the reality of mind and reason. And again, you could say, this just seems inconsistent with a materialistic worldview, so we'll have to chuck out a belief in materialism. And again, here, it's, it's like the eliminatives and the um, rejecting naturalism on that, on that basis uh, agree with each other that there's an inconsistency and they just disagree about which which side to resolve it on so daniel Dennett says yes there's an inconsistency but i'm going to hold on to materialism and therefore deny rationale that you know people are really reasoning or thinking about things uh, and someone like me would say well so i'm going to accept that we're we're arguing and reasoning and thinking about things uh, and deny materialism and there, there, there are those in the middle who say, but well, we want to kind of have our cake and eat it. So because they, they say, how can you how can you deny what is blatantly obvious that we are thinking about things, you know, thinking differing thoughts, arguing, um, reasoning that we sometimes know stuff. I, I know what I'm feeling right now. How can you how can you deny that, Daniel Dennett, you know? Um, now, I think they're right about that. I think they're right about that. But I also think that Dennett's right that, that there's an inconsistency between that and materialism. But if you so if they're both kind of right in those ways, actually, what follows from you can take those as two premises in an argument saying that they're both wrong fundamentally about their commitment to materialism. Dennett's right that materialism doesn't fit with rationality. But the, the, the majority of philosophers say, say, yeah, of course, we're reasoning and thinking and so on about things, but we must fit it into a materialist worldview. They're right that we are thinking and arguing and reasoning about things. okay? But, but from those two, it follows that materialism is not, not true. And then again, I would say it's a further step to think, well, what worldview would give a natural home to our ability as, as finite knowers and reasoners? Well, one which posits in the beginning was an infinite knower and reasoner <laughs> is one that gives a you know a place a home for uh, such a reality. As to why those you know materialism and reason knowledge and so on are incompatible, there's there's again a cumulative case of a number of different arguments, such as the one that that Lewis makes in um, the second chapter of, of Miracles, but such as ones that are made. I mean, again, not just by religious philosophers, but by philosophers like um, Thomas Nagel or, or um, Raymond Tallis, Anthony O'Hare, on the theistic side, folks like um, Alvin Plantinga, C.S. Lewis, um, William Hasker, Victor Repper, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there are a number of different ways of, of putting these arguments for the, for the incompatibility, which we could look at. Um, a really major important one, I think, is is the arguments about intentionality. As, as I say, if you start with, with a, a, you know, part of the point of the way a materialist naturalist worldview has described is that we, we have these non-intentional realities um, in a closed system, and then humans are meant to be part of that, you know, a subset of that non-intentional reality. How do you suddenly get thoughts with intentionality, with, with the quality of being about something. Um, I think it was Raymond Tallis who kind of said um, this is kind of the opposite of physical causation. It goes against the grain of causation. To have a thought about something is, is not having a thought that's caused by something. I mean you could can, can have a thought about something that's not even real. It doesn't exist. <laughs> um, all that about something that's you know um so far away that it couldn't possibly be uh, the cause of your thought and yet you can still have a thought about it if it's you know, beyond your event horizon the event horizon of the universe um so uh, intentionality is is a really tricky thing to fit within a materialist naturalist worldview and yet it's it's key to our ability to think about things
0: Thank you for that. i just encourage anybody that kind of got lost or or confused at all just to rewind and to re-listen to that because I think there's um there's a lot in there that people might just switch off from because they aren't thinking it through logically themselves. And actually, it's a really um I think I think it's I think it's a bit of a stopper for me. It's something that has genuinely kind of caught me off guard and made me go, well, what does this mean for? My assumptions, my views, my kind of um, natural reactions to things now that I wouldn't call myself a Christian. And actually those things have been challenged, which is, I think, a really healthy position to be in to actually go, well, you know, surely you need to be moving. If you're just in a single position and you're never going to move, you've, you've stagnated and you need to realize that um, and actually being able to, yeah listen to these things and actually work them through is a really healthy thing to do
2: i was going to say if if we if we have time or in the editing i I could use i think the the homeliest kind of example is um uh, richard taylor's welcome to wales analogy argument okay it kind of puts this argument in in some sort of concrete terms um as as a sort of introduction to this this area so this is richard taylor he says um if you were on a train and you glance out the window and you see, um, some rocks on a mountainside and the rocks happen to be arranged together so that they spell out the words, welcome to Wales. Okay. He says, well, you might, having looked at those rocks, form the belief, oh, I'm, I must be entering Wales now. This is, um, presumably you're going to Wales on the train, but you now think, oh, I've, I've now entered Wales because there's this welcome to Wales sign. Well, he says, well, Suppose you hold this belief, the following belief, about how those rocks came to be in that formation. It says, you think that those rocks came into that formation purely by physical, natural processes of weathering and erosion and rock slides over the years, the interplay of natural forces over time. Um, you know, some rocks rolled a bit down the mountain and then they stopped and and the the wind blew lots, we could say, and the little stones got blew away, but big ones got left. And, you know, so we have this interplay of completely natural forces and they resulted in this welcome to Wales pattern of stones. He says, would it be reasonable for you, if you thought that was the explanation of why these stones are in that arrangement, would it be reasonable of you to still form the belief, oh, I must be entering Wales now, to to trust those rocks, to tell you something true about the world outside of themselves. And he says, well, you know, clearly not. This is not a good reason to believe you're entering Wales. And then he says, but suppose you think about your own mind, or for a physicalist, presumably, your brain. Uh, the, the arrangement of electrochemical activity in your brain at the moment, which is forming thinking about where am I on this train? You know, it says, suppose you think that that brain is the, the, the product of, you know, lots of uh, interplay of physical unintentional forces over time, some sort of, uh, that the, the, the electrochemical pattern in your brain is the, the result of purely physical forces. Would it be reasonable of you to trust that brain, that electrical chemical pattern of things in your brain, to tell you something true about the world outside of itself? He says, if you say yes, aren't you saying something parallel to what we said in the case of trusting the the sign made out of the stones was irrational? So why trust your mind if your mind is the the outcome of uh, an unintended, non-intentional process? Why trust your thoughts if your thoughts are the causal product of the laws of physics um, and chemistry and electricity and, and so on? Um, doesn't that undermine the rationality of believing in your own rationality, if you were to believe that.
0: Uh, so Peter, where can people go to be able to find out more information um, about the argument from reason?
2: On the uh, argument from reason, there's the, um, the section of my book on C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, which looks at particularly Lewis's uh, version in, in the context of debates in his day and our day about this argument. There's also a chapter on the argument in my book, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy. Reading the second chapter of Miracles um, is always a good one. And um, for a sort of modern day development of that argument by a contemporary philosopher of religion, there's Victor Rappert's little, very readable little book called C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea for a contemporary philosopher developing thoughts inspired by Lewis's version of this, this argument.
0: Okay, Peter. As we begin to wrap things up, um, is there kind of any easy way we can get hold of you? Any links to your kind of materials? How do you like people to get in touch?
2: This, this is the bit where I do uh, plugging and promo. Is it? Yeah.
0: That's it. Yeah, go for it.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I have a website, uh, which is just simply um, peterswilliams.com uh, online, and that will tell you info about uh, my books and so on, and give you access through that website to. Uh, my podcast channel which is free and to my youtube channel Um, i curate a lot of youtube playlists on different philosophical and religious topics on my youtube channel so i've got um, hundreds of youtube playlists with um, short and not so short videos on topics like the argument from from reason and so on um, and these issues that we've been discussing so there's a lot of good stuff that i've curated there Uh, and my podcast is available through my website, but like iTunes and Podbean and so on, um, and info about my various books, including let me do plug my my most recent book uh, is a response to Richard Dawkins' recent book Outgrowing God, uh, and mine's just called Outgrowing God with a question mark, uh, a beginner's guide to Richard Dawkins and the God debate. Uh, so that's just out.
0: Super helpful, and um, yeah, it's been amazing to have you on the show. I know. um We've been chatting for a while now and um, it's been really good to go through these things. And um, I just wanted to end if it's okay with you, by just reading a quote from your book, actually. Okay, so I found this really, really helpful, I think. And I think it kind of touched on a little bit on kind of what what Dave was saying about when do people believe and where do those lines get drawn? And um, it it just simply says, um, C.S. Lewis knew from personal experience that it takes guts to reevaluate one's worldview and that it takes time to move from one position to another. He wouldn't expect anyone to change their metaphysical outlook on the strength of a single conversation or reading a single book, not even one he'd written himself. However, he would point out the importance of recognising one's philosophical presuppositions so as not to beg the question at the outset, and then doggedly heeding Socratic club's call to follow the argument wherever it leads. Here is a door behind which, according to some people, the secret of the universe is waiting for you, Either that's true or it isn't, and if it isn't, then what the door really conceals is simply the greatest fraud, the most colossal cell on record. It isn't obviously the job of every man to try and find out which and then to devote his full energies either to serving the tremendous secret or to exposing and destroying the gigantic humbug. And that's a bit there you're quite different from Lewis, um, Man or Rabbit, but then you, uh, sorry, Man or Rabbit, but then you continue on saying, the new atheists give every appearance of being a movement dedicated to destroying this gigantic humbug, despite refusing to give due diligence to the primary task of discovering whether or not it is true. I just find that very powerful and very moving. So I want to thank you for that.
2: Thanks very much, guys. It was uh, really nice to, to talk. I, I probably got carried away a little bit at points, maybe too expansive. but. Uh wish you all the best with your future recordings etc etc and let's be let's keep in touch
0: absolutely yeah thank you so much for your time yeah really good fun